You can turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our study verse by verse of this last book of the Bible. And I'll begin our time by reading to you a letter, a personal letter, a personal letter from Jesus to a church, to a church in Asia Minor in a city called Sardis. And it's a letter that Jesus wrote personally to this church to give an assessment of how things were going in the church. The one who knows hearts and minds, the one who is everywhere and knows everything. And this church is not written merely to, or this letter is written not merely to the church at Sardis, but to everyone who would have ears to hear. And so this letter is written in effect to Grace Bible Church and to every individual Christian. Listen to the word of God. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father And before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a letter from Jesus to a dead church. And it's a letter from Jesus to all who would hear it, to dead churches throughout history, and to those who would be Christians in name only. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to trace church history for a few moments. And we can see the Sardis pattern repeated over and over. Jerusalem at the beginning was the center of gospel proclamation and outward expansion. And then there was Antioch and Asia Minor, the region where Sardis was, and and North Africa and Rome. All of these successively were hotbeds of life and truth and the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And today these regions are mostly dead spiritually. The true church descended into obscurity in the Middle Ages, roughly speaking, much of the period spanning 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., The Protestant Reformation was a glorious recovery of the Word of God and of the Gospel, and it worked outwardly from Europe across the entire globe. Geneva, London, the Netherlands, they were all places that almost everywhere you looked, there was a church and a church sending missionaries. The flames of this Reformation spread to places like Edinburgh, which in two successive seasons had expository, sovereign grace, preaching gospel churches that sent missionaries to the ends of the earth for almost 100 years. We send missionaries to those places now. London is nearly dead. The Netherlands, nearly dead. 
Since the Reformation, we have seen the rise and fall of national churches, denominations, and independent churches in wave after wave of startup and downgrade. The mainline denominations in North America, all of which began with fresh awareness of biblical truths and new outpourings of spiritual life, sunk under 20th century theological liberalism. The denominations began to reflect what was taught in their seminaries. What was taught in the seminary classroom to prospective pastors was an anti-supernaturalist approach to life. An anti-supernaturalist approach to theology. That is, you have to read your Bible and take all the miracles out. No virgin birth. Jesus was not God in the flesh. He was just a man. And, and the Bible itself is just a book that people wrote. It, it has errors and contradictions. And, and sure, you can find some nuggets of truish thought that from time to time can help people. And you can have a spirituality divorced, uh, divorced from a belief in an inerrant Bible. You can have some transcendent experience with the divine apart from believing in the historical facts of Christianity. That's what was taught in seminaries. And in the beginning of the 20th century, churches began to reflect what was taught in those classrooms. No miracles, no bloody substitutionary across. That, that's offensive. No angry God. Nothing that would offend the moral sensitivities of man of the world. Don't indict mankind as sinful. Just provide some social improvement. Churches can be really helpful if they run soup kitchens. Most of America's Ivy League schools were founded to train men for pastoral ministry. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And they, along with most of the mainline seminaries, abandoned belief in God's Word. You go to the religion departments of those schools today, they actually seek to train students to disbelieve the Bible. And all of this in the beginning of the 20th century boiled down, trickled down to the churches in those denominations. Pastors coming out of the seminaries dumped their newfangled theology through the pulpits into those denominational churches. And those denominations and those churches, those buildings, those structures, those hierarchies all still exist. But they are spiritually bankrupt and lifeless. They no longer serve as lampstands for the gospel. And at the beginning of the 20th century, you had the Bible conference movement spring into the vacuum. People went to conferences once a year and then eventually more often than that because they wanted to hear the gospel proclaimed and they wanted to hear the Bible believingly explained because they were not hearing the truth of God from their pastors or in their churches. Bible colleges were started, new seminaries sprung up, and the Bible church movement emerged. Eventually, the people that were going to those conferences said, why can't we hear this every week? And they left the denominations, and they started Bible churches. We, we are the spiritual inheritors of that movement. God's sheep, with their spiritual ears on, went searching for new places to hear their shepherd's voice. There was new vitality, new excitement, and a generation enjoyed the life-producing work of the Word of God clearly taught, the regenerating work of the Spirit, as the gospel was unashamedly proclaimed. But after a generation of two, these new assemblies can themselves become churches in name only. 
Even the moniker Bible Church may not mean much today. Churches that once heralded the truth of the gospel don't seem to remember what the gospel is. Churches that once faithfully, unashamedly proclaimed God's word become nearly indistinguishable from the world around them. In a very real sense, they are coasting on their historic reputations while spiritual life has left the building. They are dead churches. Once alive, now churches in name only. And these organizations have buildings and budgets and programs and activities, but little to no spiritual life. How do you recognize a dying church? Is there any remedy for a church on life support? This church at Sardis may have been the first to experience its own demise, but it certainly was not the last. Jesus' instructions to the church at Sardis will help us process the phenomenon of once thriving churches that experienced deterioration and death. And this letter will warn us, will help us be on guard against the spiritual apathy, lethargy, and moral compromise that lead to church death. By way of organization this morning, we'll look at the six elements of Jesus' evaluation of the church at Sardis. A similar pattern to the letters we've looked at up to this point. This is church number five, letter number five, in the series of seven letters to seven churches that Jesus wrote in the first century. It begins with a salutation, that's the greeting. Notice verse one of chapter three. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Sardis was the next church in the circular pattern on that circular road, the postal route of the Roman province known as Asia Minor. It's modern day Turkey. I have that for you on the map. It is 35 miles southeast of the last church we looked at, Thyatira. And Sardis, for a long time, held its spot as the greatest city of the Grecian Empire. The city of Sardis had some remarkable features to it. It was an impregnable fortress. It sat atop steep, rocky cliffs, near vertical cliffs on three sides. It was kind of a peninsula in the air, a, a citadel in the sky. The, the backside of the city backed up to a mountain, and so it was easily protected, very difficult to take, and it guarded an entrance to the valley in which other cities depended on its citadel for protection. In fact, the city sat 1,500 feet up off the valley floor. By way of comparison, Camelback Mountain, if you've hiked it, is 1,300 feet above the desert floor around it. So to take Sardis was considered to do the impossible. If you wanted to try something that nobody thought you could do, they compared it to try taking Sardis. In 549 BC, the city lost its prestige and its status as a capital city in the area when Cyrus of Persia took the city. How did he do it? One lone rock climber. You see, the city was surrounded by these steep cliffs and the choke points were guarded, but nobody thought to guard those steep cliffs. And an Alex Honnell type soloed the climb, got into the city, opened the gates, and allowed Cyrus's army in. And no one bothered to guard what they thought was secure. They were apathetic about guarding the vertical cliff. 
The same thing happened again to Sardis in 195 BC. It was conquered by a small band of rock-climbing Cretan soldiers who again scaled that vertical cliff and captured the city for Antiochus the Great. You think they would have learned the lesson. And there was a third historical disaster that demolished much of what remained of the city's former greatness. A massive earthquake hit Asia Minor in 17 AD. Uh, That will see several references throughout the book of Revelation, probably the memory of that massive earthquake. But it was said that Sardis took the brunt, closest to the epicenter, received much damage. And it's likely that much of the city at the time of 17 AD actually slid 1,500 feet off the cliff and ended up in rubble in the valley floor. What was once a great city, wealthy, industrious, and strategic, was no longer great Sardis' former glory as the greatest of Grecian cities was at best in the rearview memory of history. The memories were all that remained of her best days. This is the city that was home to a church that was likewise coasting on its reputation of its former days. In his greeting, Jesus refers to himself, notice this in verse 1, as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus' self-description goes back again to chapter 1. We saw the seven spirits of God. Some have called this the sevenfold spirit of God in Revelation 1.4. There is only one Holy Spirit, but these seven spirits who are before his throne is probably a reference to Zechariah 4, which depicts the work of the singular Holy Spirit in an emblem of seven lampstands in a visionary temple. And the various and complete work of the Holy Spirit of God working throughout the world in various ways in His omnipresence and omniscience is on display in that symbolism. What you have here is a reminder that Jesus has and ushers forth for the benefit of His churches His omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent Holy Spirit. The personal person of the Godhead active in the spiritual life and vitality of the church. And you can look back at Zechariah 2, 4 to 6 to see the reference to that or go back to our study in chapter 1. John's use of this same imagery in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 make it clear that Zechariah 4 is the backdrop and that the work of the Holy Spirit is intended here. The significance of the reference to the Holy Spirit for this letter is this. No church can have spiritual life without the Holy Spirit of God producing spiritual life. He is the agent of new birth. He is the one that produces repentance and faith in the preaching of the gospel. He is the one that produces fruit in the life of believers for the growth of the church. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit preached and works in the true people of God. The truths of God's word cannot even be understood by merely natural men because they are spiritually appraised, 2 Corinthians 2.14. So Jesus, the one who has the spirit of God, delivers in this letter an urgent wake-up call because spiritual life has waned and is nearly extinguished at Sardis. We see also in this greeting that Jesus is the one who has the seven stars, That takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 16. We find out that those seven stars are seven angels, supernatural beings representing the seven churches. Jesus himself is the one who holds them. He is Lord of the church and he controls the churches. He is sovereign and he has a vested interest in what goes on in his church. 
John sees Jesus holding these seven stars in his right hand. The right hand is the, the emblem of power and authority. And to hold a star carries that weight of, of power and authority and ownership. Colossians 1.15 makes it clear that Jesus controls all the stars of the universe. But here his focus is on his relationship to the churches. These churches that are little and persecuted and precious to him, and Jesus holds them in the right hand of his power. They are designed to be lampstands, platforms of his light in a dark world. They are to be bearers of the gospel to a lost, corrupt, and troubled, and rebellious humanity. And these churches dispersed to the ends of the earth would be an enemy territory holding out the light of Christ to the world. And that light of Christ is the world's only hope. If the light goes dim on any one of these lampstands, then the church ceases to live up to its purpose. And Jesus has that power and that authority to remove a lampstand from its place, as he said to the church at Ephesus. To be held in the right hand of Jesus is a guarantee of his powerful protection over his own witnesses. And it is also an accountability for when those churches fail to witness. And just a reminder here, thinking about churches and angels and stars and Jesus having them in his hand. This is an elevated view of the church and her activities. We're we're not to think of church as a merely human thing, a human institution that is free to evolve with the changing philosophies of human culture. God's plan for the church is fixed, inflexible, and prescribed for us in his word. It is his church. It belongs to him. He has written the script for how the church is to go. His true church, faithful to the word of God and heralding the gospel of Christ, matters in the cosmos, in the heavenlies, as a proclamation by God to the spiritual powers of his purpose and grace in the gospel to forgive sinners and to bring them glory. And you remember that passage in Ephesians where Jesus is working out God the Father's sovereign purposes in the church, in our human activities as we gather to proclaim the mystery of his infinite wisdom to the heavenly powers in the cosmos. What does that do for us? That, that just raises the stakes for us, lifts our eyes up above the, the mundane and the terrestrial and, and thinking that church is just about the things that we do here, kind of the ways that we want to do it. Now, this matters in the heavenlies. Jesus is Lord of the churches. We move next in our outline to the commendation. And in each of the letters so far, we've had the statement where Jesus says, I know your deeds and here's what you've been doing right. And to this church, there is no commendation. Jesus has nothing to say to Sardis about what they are doing right. This is the first of two letters in the list with no such commendation. And so we move very quickly to the confrontation. Notice we're still in verse 1. I know your deeds, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead, Jesus says. This is abrupt, startling. We're not even done with the first verse in the letter before we come to the confrontation portion. Jesus says, I know your works. Again, his penetrating gaze where he sees everything and he knows everything is simultaneously a comfort and a serious accountability. 
What are their works? Are anything good to report? Nothing. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Jesus sees through the facade. He describes their spiritual life as non-existent. You're probably familiar with a couple of Greek words for life. Bios is the word for biological life. And Zoe is the name for spiritual life, consistently in the scriptures. And Jesus says here, you have a name that there is spiritual life, but you are in fact spiritually dead. The word name shows up four times in this very short letter. It becomes an important concept. There's a name that you carry on the outside. The name that Sardis carried on the outside was a sham. It wasn't true. It was an empty shell. Spiritually alive. The first use of this word name describes a church in name only. A nominal church. The city of Sardis, once great, defeated twice and leveled by an earthquake, is a monument to unrealized expectations. It actually had become a metaphor in the Greek-speaking world for pride before a fall, like Sardis. Its keepers, thinking they were in an impenetrable fortress, were not vigilant to guard it from attack. And its reputation was an empty boast. And then after the great earthquake, much of the city's former glory was in a heap of rubble on the valley floor. The church in the city of Sardis, once spiritually alive, has left to it only the memory of its spiritual vitality. It had a great name, but now was a church in name only. One commentator wrote that the church experienced deterioration to the point of outward sham. The church as an organization still exists. It maintained the external trappings of church activity, but with no spiritual life in it. We might cry, Ichabod, the Spirit of the Lord has departed the assembly, just like when the glory left the temple. The church at Sardis now resembled what the temple had become in Jerusalem. For over three decades to this point, after the religious establishment rejected and crucified Christ, the temple still operated. Very religious, respectable, with procedures and traditions, flowing robes and pretentious priests, ceremonies and rituals, but dead. God was not in the building. And now, similarly, the church at Sardis was experiencing death after life, deterioration and downgrade and declension. In our day, we can readily picture people wearing crosses, talking about thoughts and prayers, talking about God and spirituality, the name of Jesus on the lips even as a curse word, showing up dutifully at buildings with the word church on a sign, but they bear no marks of true spiritual life. Is there hope for such a condition? Well, that moves us into the command in verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, wake up. A call to revival. There is, in fact, a series of commands from Jesus in this section, five of them. And the first one is simply this wake up. The, the, the verb has a continual aspect to it. it, is, it is be revived and stay awake. I was in the Boy Scouts as a kid, and 
uh, we were taking some first aid and they made us all try the smelling salts. Have you ever done that? You know, you snap the thing open and it's ammonia and, whoa, I'm awake now. Could just about raise the dead with those things. The point is to revive consciousness after fainting. This command here is a smelling salt for spiritual revival. Wake up and go on being watchful continually. Jesus says next, strengthen the things that, command, uh, the things that remain. And, and this command to strengthen is, instead of a continual command, it's an urgent one. Take urgent action. And notice how Jesus says this, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. We find out in verse 4 what Jesus means by the things that remain. He will go on there to say, you have a few people. He's talking about individuals there who are in Sardis, who are in the church, who are not spiritual zombies. But they are the minority. It would appear then that Sardis, in the famous words from the movie The Princess Bride, was mostly dead. They were on life support. The church in hospice care. There's a flicker of life that once was and is about to go out. And notice Jesus' assessment, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Whatever got started there in faith did not get finished. And Jesus' words here are important. I have not found, he says. They might have passed human inspection. You could have asked in the city of Sardis, hey, is such and such a church still around? Oh, yeah, their parking lot is always full. They do a big canned goods drive every Thanksgiving. By the world's standards, the church is good. What's their message? Oh, keep the food pantry stocked. Don't judge anybody. Keep to yourselves. Don't meddle in our fun. Listen, the world is happy to have dead churches. Dead churches say what the world says they should say. Dead churches do what the world approves. They take their talking points and their marching orders from the culture. And so they're not offensive. The world's not threatened by dead churches. But such churches do not pass the bar of Jesus' scrutiny. I have not found your deeds completed. What would those completed works look like? I, I think... We could probably go anywhere in the New Testament that describes what a church should be and just start making a list. Uh, I'll give you a few just as a summary to whet your appetite. What, what should a complete church look like? Well, Colossians 1.28, everyone complete in Christ. Ephesians 4, spiritual maturity for discernment and, and holiness of life. The book of Titus, qualified shepherds and sanctified lives and an intolerance for false teaching. 1 Peter 4.19, a church that's marked by suffering for doing what is right, willing to take lumps for standing out in a dark world. 1 Peter 3.15, a church with a readiness to make a defense of our hope in Christ, bold with the gospel, bold with our loyalty and affiliation to Christ. Matthew 28, making disciples of Christ amongst all the nations. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, entrusting another generation with the truths handed down. And we could go on and on and on. The work is not done yet, Jesus says in Sardis. The spiritual life has waned and, and these things that must mark the church have gone away. Notice in this letter, 
No enemies of the church are listed. Not emperor worship, not the trade guilds, not even a hostile Jewish community. There was a large Jewish community in Sardis. But the hostility between the church and the synagogue had evaporated. And I think that leads us to understand what was going on at Sardis. Jesus says, strengthen that which remains. Church, give your attention to those who still know me, who still walk in my ways. Verse 3, Jesus says, remember what you have received and have heard. This is a, a third in the series of commands here. And this one is a continual command, go on remembering. Uh, this is like the refrain of the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, God gave Mosaic law and then every section of the Old Testament after Mosaic law was a look back and say, remember, you forgot me. Go back and remember. Similar command here. Remember, and notice what Jesus says, remember what made you the church. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the basics. Remember what you received and heard. This is spiritual life they originally received and the deposit of the truth. Go on remembering these things. What is it that made you a church in the beginning? Loyalty to Christ. And the problem with Sardis is they had departed from what they received and what they heard. They exchanged the deposit of truth and the spiritual life they got in the gospel, they exchanged that for something that allowed them to be comfortable in the world. The world in darkness needs the light. Why would a church dim the lights? The church at Sardis had compromised the truth in order to be acceptable to the world. How do we know this? We know this by contrast to the overcomers in verse 5. So we have to look ahead just a little bit. Notice there, Jesus says, the one who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his holy angels. A reference to Jesus' words where he said, if you keep my name, if you confess my name, I'll confess you before my Father and the angels in heaven. Contrarily, if you deny my name, I will deny you before my Father and his angels. What was at stake in Sardis? The professing believers there, the church as an institution, shied away from loyalty to the name of Christ. They lost their willingness to stick to their guns and their convictions that made them distinct from the world. As I said before, there was a strong Jewish community at Sardis. In the first century, the, the rabbis had developed a series of 18 prayers that, that were to be read out loud publicly every day in the synagogues. Prayer number 12 in the list of 18 was called a benediction for the heretics. Literally, the, the Hebrew reads a blessing on the heretics, and it is in fact an invective, a curse. It was probably written around the time of the Roman conquest of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and then became the standard prayer in Jewish communities. Listen to the words of this prayer. For the apostates, let there be no hope. Uproot the kingdom of arrogance speedily and in our days. 
May the Nazarenes and the sectarians perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and let them not be written together with the righteous. You are praised, O Lord, who subdues the arrogant. Can you imagine being in a town where publicly, out loud, maybe on NPR, maybe on social media, you heard, let the followers of Jesus be cursed forever, removed from the book of life as a prayer of religious people. That's what the people at Sardis faced. The Nazarenes and the sectarians. They were called arrogant. A kingdom of arrogance. So the church at Sardis decided it would, it would rather be well thought of by the world than to face expulsion from polite society. And so the light of the church went dim. Their aroma faded. You know the imagery that Paul uses in Corinthians about a fragrance of life and death. We're an aroma of life to those who are alive, to those being saved. We're a fragrance of death to those going to their own judgment. Couldn't smell the church at Sardis anymore. They were indistinct from the world. They blended in. They were inoffensive. They didn't want to face the hostility. They preferred to be invisible to it. They took on cultural camouflage. They no longer ruffled the feathers of the culture. Jesus' command here to remember is followed by the command, keep it. Remember what you received and heard and keep it. And again, this is an ongoing command. Keep it, hold on to it, like Jude 3. Do not let go of the faith handed down once for all to the saints. The, the faith there is that body of truth given to us in the New Testament. Don't let it go. And it means don't let it go at the point where it causes offense. It's not enough to say, well, I got 80% of Jude 3. But, but why do I want to ruffle feathers of the society around me with those things that they take particular offense to? It's like the mission strategy in the Muslim world that, that refuses to call God Yahweh, refuses to refer to Jesus as his son, and will not in its evangelism speak of Jesus having died on a cross and risen from the dead. Why? Well, that stuff's really offensive in the Muslim world. Take away the offense and, and they'll like Jesus better. I, I can get along with 80%, right? 80% of the faith once for all handed to the saints. That was the approach at Sardis. Listen, your loyalty to Christ is actually measured specifically at the point of offense with the culture. You don't get to pick and choose what parts of God's word are most important to you or up for debate or able to be negotiated away in order to purchase peace with the world. We leave that in the hands of the Lord. It's his truth, it's his gospel, it's his name. And loyalty to him means loyalty to all that he is. 
For Sardis, it probably meant something very specifically to do with the name of Christ, that which identified him as distinct. Jesus as God's son, his identity as the son of man, the son of God, the Davidic heir, the Messiah, the coming king. Listen, some Jews could acknowledge Jesus as a teacher, an accomplished rabbi. And so you could just imagine the church at Sardis going, yeah, we'll just refer to him as rabbi. I mean, why step on the toes of everybody in the supermarket? Uh, take away the offense, and, and then they'll have good feelings about the Jesus that we say that we follow. The next command here is very simple. Repent. And this one is an urgent action. It, it demands an about face, a 180 degree turn in the mind with a consequent change in behavior. Stop going the direction you're going, turn around and go the other direction. And the church at Sardis had compromised for the sake of comfort. They were to repent, that is, return to the truth and offend the culture. Stop being ashamed of the gospel. Stop being ashamed of the name of Christ and his true identity, the distinctives that separate truth from the world of darkness. And then Jesus says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Look at verse 4. Or the end of verse 3. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. This is the language Jesus used speaking about his own return, Matthew 24 and Luke 12. The unexpected appearance of the Son of God on earth in judgment will be a surprise to the world. The earth dwellers will say, oh, I wasn't ready. He will come like a thief. Unexpected, an unpleasant surprise. And Jesus says he would visit Sardis in an unexpected manner in judgment of the church. This may be a personal visitation from Christ. It may be a reference to the surprise factor of churchgoers when they die and they meet Christ and he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Look, you, you spend your whole life going to church, dutifully doing all the things, stand up, sit down, sing the songs, go through all the ceremonies. Order your life around this social club that was nothing to God. What a waste. I believe there will be an apostate church on the earth after the rapture in league with the world and in league with the beast, the Antichrist. It will be a dead church. Functional organization with no spiritual life. What will it be like when there are operating religious organizations when the judge of all the earth shows up in judgment? It will be like a thief. Unexpected, unpleasant surprise. And the unexpected nature of this threat indicates that the church believed it was okay when in fact it was on life support or even completely dead. There's no indication here that Jesus anticipated that Sardis would turn things around. This warning is just stark and abrupt. To Ephesus, Jesus said, change or I'll remove the lampstand. To Pergamum, Jesus said, change or I'm coming with a sword. To Sardis, he says, change or I'm coming for judgment when you least expect. 
Listen, it is much better to offend the world than to offend Jesus, the judge of the world. There is a promise here in this letter. It's in verses 4 and 5. It starts with a strong contrast in verse 4, but you do have a few people. This phrase, you have a few people, literally is, you have a few names in Sardis. It's too bad that the English translations hide the word name. It's so prominent and important in this letter. But you have a few names there who are not polluted, not stained, not smeared. They have resisted the backslide, the downgrade. They would not submit to the politically expedient burial of Christian distinctives. They were willing to stick out like a sore thumb. To be called all the names, to be called a kingdom of arrogance, and to be under the threat of expulsion from the city or from society. The true identity of Christ that was an offense to the Jewish community in Sardis, these few names held on to. And Jesus promises, they will walk with me in white. Throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and throughout the book of Revelation, white garments were a sign of purity and holiness. And Jesus says, they will walk with me in white, a a promise of personal fellowship with Christ, inclusion into the society of eternal and infinite beauty and glory, and a walking in white garments. And he says, for they are worthy. They are worthy. Of course, any believers in Sardis would not have been worthy by their own merit by anything that they were intrinsically, nor by any things that they had accomplished. But their lives were the outflow of their loyalty to Christ. And that loyalty to Christ is a a mark of what they have become in God's assessment. And I just think about Paul's own testimony of worthiness and righteousness. Think about Philippians 3.8. Paul, thinking about his former religious life outside of Christ, said, all of that I turn away from. It's rubbish. It's all loss. It's all loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And listen to this. I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know him. The believers at Sardis have a worthiness that stems from an alien righteousness, a righteousness not of their own, a righteousness that comes as a free gift of God by grace through faith. And notice verse 5, the one who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. A continuation of this promise. Sardis was a city as a significant center in the clothing industry. These garments, uh, white, brilliant, pure garments would have had significance for them in that city. But the white garments here are not man-made. They are the gift of God, emblematic of the righteousness that God gives as a free gift in the gospel. And that is the amazing thing for any of us sinners who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. God exchanges our filth for his perfect purity. Dresses us, 
clothes us, wraps us up in his own righteousness so that we could stand before him blameless. That's not anything we could do. That only comes when you surrender to God through the gospel, believe in that free gift of a righteousness given. And then Jesus goes on and promises, I will not erase his name from the book of life. You might read that and you'd think, oh, names in the book of life can be erased? Uh, the word here is blotted out. It's used in Acts 3 in, in the sermon for blotting out of sins, taking them off the record. Is it possible that someone's name could be blotted out of the book of life? But that's not the implication here. There is no way you can lose your citizenship in heaven if you are a true Christian. And the true Christian is marked by a remaining loyalty to Christ. Loyalty to Christ, however, could jeopardize your standing in the community. The cities in Asia Minor kept citizen registries, books of citizenship, and names could be blotted out of those for civic offenses. And the Jewish synagogues kept rosters of those who belonged. This is not some indication that a true Christian could lose his salvation. On the contrary, it's an absolute promise that you will in no way be blotted out from that most important registry, the book of life. This book of life is detailed in a number of places in the Bible, but perhaps most strikingly in Revelation 20. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 20. In this scene of the great white throne judgment, when Jesus will sit on that throne and judge the nations and all the wicked dead will be before him, there will be one book and there will be many books. And the one book is the book of life. And in that book are written every name of everyone for whom the lamb slain paid. Paid with his own blood. And those names are written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And all the wicked dead are brought before this book and their names aren't found there. But their names are found in all the other books. These books are the, the things written according to their deeds. And all the wicked dead whose names are not found written in the book of life will find everything they've ever done recorded in the flawless records of God the Judge exposed on that final day. When Jesus says, I will not erase that loyal ones, that overcomer's name from the book of life, it means it is impossible for you, Christian, to be removed. It would be tempting to think that Christian safety could be maintained by remaining on the synagogue roster or the city citizenship registry. Christian, is that where our safety lies? You might be tempted even now to think, wow, if we want to maintain our gospel witness, we need to stick around and stay out of jail and, and keep my job and, and not offend family members, and so I'm going to stay away from those topics which are offensive, might get me into trouble. Do you remember the daily Jewish prayer? The prayer that church members at Sardis would have heard in their own community. May the Nazarenes and the sectarians perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written together with the righteous. You can see why Jesus made them the promise. 
Stay loyal to me and you will not be blotted out of the book of life. Jesus is the one in charge of the book of life, not the synagogues. And who are the Nazarenes and the sectarians? That's a shot at the Christians. Those are those who broke off of Judaism to follow Jesus the Nazarene. So if you were at Sardis, you might have been tempted to say, I'm not a sectarian. I don't just break off relationships. Don't call me that. That's not nice. I'm not a Nazarene. I've never even been to Nazareth. Yeah, nothing good comes from there anyway. You might distance yourself from that which is offensive when what the culture means is, no, you're claiming to follow Christ from Nazareth and and you're claiming to be distinct. You're saying you're right and we're wrong. That's, That's judgmental. That's unkind. That's a kingdom of arrogance. In our day, that prayer, that sentiment might be something like this. Let all those narrow-minded phobes go to hell. The vitriol against holding to biblical truth is only increasing. And Christian, your safety is not in eliminating the offense. Not if it costs you the truth. Sardian Christians might have escaped the ire of the people in their city. They might have kept their names on the city registry and the synagogue roster, but it cost them everything. The church was dead. And the few that were alive in the church's midst were given the inviolable promise of citizenship in heaven and the registry in the Lamb's book of life never to be removed. And Jesus promises them, verse 5, I will confess his name before my Father and before his holy angels. This reflects Jesus' words in Luke 12. I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. The letter closes with the now familiar plea, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this personal letter was written to a church in Asia Minor in the first century, a very specific church in a specific city called Sardis. And yet this invitation, let him who has an ear, opens the door to any individual who is reading these words, hearing Jesus' invitation here. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, opens that up to every aspect of all seven of these letters. That churches throughout history, before us and after us, should read and heed And every individual Christian ought to pay close attention. Listen, it's hard to hold on to truth. There are so many enemies to truth, and, and you can slip off of the narrow line of truth like falling off the apex of a French chalet, a steep roof, and you go down either side. And it's hard to hold on to love. And in our Bibles, truth and love go together in a, in a vibrant, vital, spirit-filled, effective, fruit-bearing church. Truth and love go hand in hand. Ephesus wasn't going to get to be a church because it left its first love. Sardis abandoned distinctive truth and was dead. It's hard to maintain truth and love. And yet that's the standard for being a platform for the gospel a lampstand for the light. 
How do we do that? Well, we have to hold on to the same old truths, those once for all handed down to the saints. The same old script. How do you do church? Follow the Bible's prescription. Don't make it up as you go. Don't, don't go with the culture and evolve with the times. Don't feel like the power for gospel witness is in your cleverness and creativity to bridge the gap to the culture around you. No, just preach the truth. Just follow the script. Do the same old things the same old ways. You have to resist novelty, innovation. Churches throughout history have gotten in trouble when they've said, man, just preaching the gospel, just doing church the way the Bible says isn't working. Well, that's not the standard. The standard is be faithful. God's the one that does the work. What are the Christian distinctives that are offensive to our world right now? Listen, that is where the battle is for loyalty to Christ. We would think sometimes that maybe we romanticize martyrdom and we think, man, yeah, I'd love to be a martyr. Maybe you've never thought that. But you think, if I'm going to go to jail, if I'm going to get burned at the stake, I want it to be for the gospel. I want it to be crystal clear, substitutionary atonement and the hope of life and joy and peace with God. That's why you're killing me. And you know what? They won't say that. The martyrs throughout history, early church martyrs, do you know what they were killed for? Well, they were killed for their loyalty to Christ. But you know what the world called it? They were cannibals. They were incestuous. During the Protestant Reformation under Bloody Mary's reign, the 1550 to 1555, do you know what they were killed for? Oh, how they take communion. No, 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 And they were saying, it's the gospel. The gospel's at stake. That's why you're killing me. No, 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 no. That's not the issue. What will Christians go to jail for today? Homophobia. Narrow-mindedness. Transphobic. Whatever the labels are. Racist. Fascist. All the terms. You would love to go down for the gospel. You're going to go down for whatever the world says you're going down for. Why do churches die? Let me give you three and maybe four categories. Number one, moral compromise. When the church ceases to be holy, when the church ceases to be separated from the world, when the church looks like the world, it's no longer an offense and therefore no longer a platform from the truth that transforms lives. Second category, pragmatic enterprise. That is, in an attempt to reach the world, the church becomes like the world. Listen, don't fall for the trick. It's a trick. It's a trap. The world will tell you, hey, we'll listen to your message if you're just a little nicer, a little more likable, and, and by the way, you'll be more likable if you drop your message. And the church falls for it over and over and over again. Yeah, we want to be liked by the world so they'll believe our message. Drop the message. Okay, we drop the message. Now you like us. And now what? Nothing. Dead church and no gospel for the world. A third category is for reputation. We, we might just call this the peer pressure you experienced in junior high. You know, if you didn't wear the right shoes, if you brought up a, a funny lunch to the lunch table, if you weren't cool enough, or, or now nerdy is cool, if you weren't nerdy enough to sit at the cool kids' table, if you're not athletic enough to sit at the jocks' table, 
there's this pressure to, to just conform, and, and Christians suffer from the same temptations. So we, we don't want to look kooky. We don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. We don't want people to think we're weird because Jesus isn't weird. And so we try to camouflage ourselves and, and blend in and, and not stand out so much and, and compromise on the things that make Christians distinct because the world says it's not cool. Well, the world doesn't know what's cool. We fall into that. And it happens in intellectual circles. Christians don't want to look dumb to the smarty pants. So they change their doctrine. They don't want to be unsophisticated, not ostracized. Moral compromise, pragmatic enterprise, and reputation would be three categories. Let me give you a fourth here. And the fourth category for why churches die may just simply be God's providence. And what I mean by that is that as he builds his church and he moves his gospel to every nation on the earth, our little brands, our little franchises and denominations and locations, they just don't stand the test of time. There, there's no denomination that's lasted 2,000 years. There's no, there's no label there, there's no multi-site, franchised version of a little Christian empire that's, that's going to outlast all the rest. They, they come and they go. And I would suggest to you, friends, that, that that's appropriate. Lest our name be attached to the promise that Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whose church is it? First, whatever of Tempe, no. But the true church, Jesus' sheep, God's people, rescued out from every tongue and tribe and nation and people for his praise. Take some encouragement. Jesus promised to build his church. You can't stop the gospel. He's the good shepherd. He will get his sheep. And while his work has not remained under one single brand for the duration of church history, we're here today. By God's grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, through the faithful proclamation of his word, for now, as a platform for light in a dark world. And may it be so for generations to come. Lord Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for your truth. We want to thank you right now for those truths particularly that draw the umbrage of the world around us. That, that put... Christians in the crosshairs of criticism. We want to thank you for the distinctives, the, the things that step on toes of a dark world. Not because we like pain, not because we want to be martyrs or behind bars or incriminated culturally, but because it makes clear, O oh God, that we are in a war. And it is a war to rescue people from the other side. To, to pull them out of the system of enmity against you. That they might have life and light and peace with you in the gospel. Keep us from compromise. In Jesus' name, amen.